I'm pretty excited about this text. We're going to deviate from our We Believe series for a few weeks to just sort of think about this, this new year. And certainly the weeks that follow today, I always spend some time talking about the direction and the future of our church. We call those Vision Provision Sunday. That will begin next week. But before we do that, I really want us to sort of not just let New Year's pass, but to really think about what it means to resolve in our minds and our hearts uh, what we're going to be for Christ this year, recognizing who he is in us and what that calling looks like in our lives. We're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 today. Just five verses, very significant verses, but they really sort of encapsulate the reality of what it is that we're talking about today. Let me read them to you. The Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. He then goes on to say, I'll read this in its entirety just so you have it in your head. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It's a pretty powerful passage of scripture if you think about it because it talks about things that the Apostle Paul is actually praying for us. He is thinking about a people, a group of people that he loves, the church of Ephesus, and he offers this sort of prayer, this desire for their lives, and I want to share that with you today. And so today we're looking at some verses that are really relevant to our lives as we enter this new year. And this is a profound passage of scripture. Paul's interesting because he writes, frankly, he writes a lot of the same things in a lot of different places in the Bible, but they're all driving us towards this one singular goal in life, understanding who Jesus is and living our lives in light of that great reality. So a passage like we're studying today really has the possibility of bringing about a deep-seated change in our lives, or at least can start the process. Because this teaching shows us that God wants us to know him in a pretty deep and meaningful way. One that causes us to fully experience the blessings and the benefits of what it means to be in Jesus. Passages like this really sort of, it, it, they sort of address the fact of the challenges that we deal with, maybe marginal or nominal Christianity, hobby-like faith. These passages really tell us something, that, that the love and pursuit that we show to Jesus really can do significant things in our lives if we follow him. And so the foundation of this prayer, to know God like this, is rooted in grasping a, a very simple but important truth. It's a very relevant truth, and especially in light of the excitement, and at least in my experience, two emotions tend to define these next weeks. Excitement and challenge. In one sense, maybe we were just longing to get to 2019. We wanted to put 2018 behind us, you know, fresh start. Some people have that, so they're a little bit excited about a new year. But for others, the reality of a new year might, might raise some difficulties. Maybe they're less excited to get into 2019. Maybe 2018 was the best year of your life, and you're wondering how 2019 can be better. I'm going to answer that for you here this morning, all right? The main truth I want to share with you this morning is a, a charge of sorts. It truly is a declaration, a battle cry of our hearts. This new year, pray and labor towards really knowing God in a deep and meaningful ways. Now, that's a pretty important statement because it signifies at the very outset of what I'm saying today that there, there are a multitude of ways to know God, but there's really only one right way to know God. We can know God academically. We can know him cognitively. We can know him just in our emotion. We can sort of understand God from a spiritual sense and disconnect it from our physical lives. There's lots of sort of pieces and particles that people often latch onto when it comes to knowing God. But to really know God signifies something very important for our lives. God wants us to know all of him in rich and robust ways, in deep and in meaningful ways. 
And that's what we read in Ephesians 1, 15 through 17. Paul says a bunch of stuff here. But the main idea of what he's telling us is that all of these things he's praying for us, to know Jesus, to know God more fully, or to know him better. He literally says that in verse 17. And so here Paul prays that you and I would experience the grace of knowing God better, or more fully is the way I like to say it. And just before this, in verses 3 through 14, Paul writes one really long sentence that describes, it's a long list of lavish graces that God has poured out on his people. And that long sentence is really a literary section inside a larger section. It's sort of like Paul is pouring out the blessing cup right now on us. And he's talking about all the great things Jesus has done for us and why that matters so much in our lives. And then when he gets to verse 15 here, he takes an obvious turn with these three little words, for this reason. If you've ever sat in a classroom or have listened to somebody who has spoken to you that you really cared about, when somebody says something like this, for this reason, what they're trying to do is they're tying everything they said into what they're about to say. It's sort of like where everything drives into a singular point. And so it's here that Paul makes an important connection between what he's just taught us about God's work in the world in our lives and the role those teachings are supposed to play in our lives. It's a sharp reminder that everything we are taught about God in the Bible, no matter where we're reading it or studying it, everything we are being taught about God in the Bible, is happening for the reason of knowing God more fully. And that's much different than just knowing God, maybe in our heads. That's not a bad thing, but it's certainly a very limited thing. It's, a, it's an area of faith that has to be sort of poured out into other areas of your life. The head must affect the heart, and the heart must affect the hands. And so here we have another passage where Paul is charging us to know God, to have a rich and robust relationship with him. And his prayer for us to know God like this carries an interesting, I'd almost say an implied warning that we should take heed of. That it is entirely possible for us to be people who can maybe dabble in truth or play with truth or absorb truth, maybe just mentally or cognitively, but disconnect it from the rest of our lives. In other words, we can read truths about Jesus, but not necessarily always apply them to our hearts or experience the grace or the benefit that these truths are meant to provide us. Now, I want to be super clear here before we go any further. Um, Don't hear me speaking against the mind. Your mind, my mind, is the gateway to the heart. You know, that's typically how things happen. When we're reading or studying stuff, when we're weighing uh, ideas or thoughts in our world, that stuff starts in our head. But when they really matter, they truly move into our heart. So in no way am I trying to say that learning and studying about God is a bad thing. Rather, the warning Paul gives us here is that if we only have an information-based relationship with God— it will fall short of the rich life that God provides for us in Jesus. It really misses the mark of the fullness God wants us to have. And this is very important to know, because in our modern world, it is very common for some Christians to think that knowing God is simply knowing something about God. And you've heard me say this before if you've been in this room, knowing God is much different than knowing something about God. And this is in large part because we live in a culture that is pretty obsessed with consuming information. It's pretty indisputable at this point. This has become especially true. If you look at the history of the world and especially our country over the last century, the advent of the computer and the internet literally changed the world that we live in. We went from being like an industrial nation to a nation now that is defined by technology and information. And this is not just America. This is pretty much the world globally. Everybody is moving in this direction. Information is now the new, the new printing press or the new automobile factory machine. That's what we dabble in today. That's the, the commodity of the world, information. And with this new era that we live in, this increased availability of information, it brought a major shift in the way that we see knowledge or access to it and the way that we actually apply it. 
So think about this. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. Essentially, like 100 years ago, 125 years ago, we moved from being a people, like if you, let's just say you were a metal worker, and I use this illustration for a reason. If you were a metal worker, you learned about metal to do what? To make metal, right? Or if you were learning about wood, you did that because you were likely going to practice the trade of carpentry. Uh, we went from that to being a people now who have the luxury of learning these things simply because we want to learn them. Maybe some of us are, you know, hobbyists when it comes to carpentry or metalworking or whatever it is. The idea is that a lot of us now through television and information, we can actually see and learn all of this stuff without ever having the desire to even do any of this stuff. For many of us, consuming information has become a bit of a hobby and I would say even a luxury at times. And I'll give you an example of this in my own life. A few years ago, I started watching this show on the History Channel called Forged in Fire. Have any of you ever seen this show? No, okay. So I'm like a total history geek. One of you have. We can be geeks together. Uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite shows, and it's a fascinating show because I, I love history of all sorts. I mean, there's really no history that I don't enjoy. And this is a show about blacksmithing, which obviously is a major element of world history. Blacksmithing, forging weapons and armor and tools, these things were catalysts to make the world somewhat of what it is today. And so I really took to this show. It's about five years old. And the premise of the show is that they take these group of contestants, all of them are metalsmiths from around the country, and they are challenged to make some type of knife or tool, often from really bad metal, scrap metal. Sometimes they'll have to, like, you know, take something apart, like a junky motorcycle, and find the, the metal they can take out of that to make a knife or a tool. And it's amazing to watch the contestants on this show do this. Truly amazing to watch them work, because they often take what looks like junk to me in the modern world, and they heat this stuff up and pound it out on an anvil, and then they make something that you would see in a store to buy, a functional knife or tool. And so I've watched this show enough that it, at times, I actually feel like I have an understanding of how the metal forging process works. Like, I will sit on my couch sometimes with my bowl of ice cream while these dudes are sitting there banging out metal in 400 degree rooms with all this heat, like complaining and critiquing about what they should be doing as if I've been metalsmithing my whole life. Right? And so on some days, I probably feel like I'm more of an expert in blacksmithing than the people on the TV. And a few months ago, it was sort of interesting. I mean, I still enjoy the show, but I started thinking about the silliness of my couch critique for these folks who have spent their whole lives doing this. Let me tell you what I mean by this. I've seen every episode of this show, and some days I really do believe, like I have a sound knowledge of blacksmithing, like I could make you a sword out behind the theater if I wanted to. Right? However, if I were to bring like an actual blacksmith into this room and we were to begin talking about blacksmithing, I'm pretty confident the person would disagree that I have a deep and robust and rich understanding of blacksmithing. Well, I'm sure I could have a good conversation with somebody about the history and the types of metals used to forge knives or tools. Well, I could talk to somebody about the, the heat that's required and the oils needed to temper and harden a blade. I could talk to them about all of this and a host of other things, blacksmithing techniques. There would be one massive difference between myself and an actual blacksmith. That difference would be only one of us has actually experienced and applied all of that blacksmithing knowledge to the point where it was used to make something with metal, to make a knife or a tool. One of us has a knowledge of this, the other one actually has a knowledge that shaped an experience. While both of us could talk a great deal about blacksmithing, only one person has used the knowledge for its chief end to make something out of metal. And that person is, isn't me in this example. So all that said, 
Watching this process, I, I have to defend myself a little bit. It's actually created a desire in me. I want to take a class on this. I'm trying to find a place to go, like, make something. So if I'm out here for a week or I come back with, like, you know, no fingers, you'll know why. But I'm, I'm looking to do this. But for right now, as it stands, I'm just a guy who thinks he knows something about blacksmithing. I know enough about it to be dangerous. Right? But I've never made anything. There's an interesting parallel here when it comes to our understanding of God <clears throat> or our knowledge of God and how we actually apply that in our life. Because this is sort of a great example of the reality that we have this unbridled access to an unlimited amount of information at our fingertips. And that's not a bad thing. Don't hear me saying that that is a bad thing. However, it could possibly create some challenging disciplines in our life that are maybe unhealthy. It's created a challenge is what I'm trying to say. We do live in a culture where a lot of people are accustomed to gathering a lot of information, oftentimes with the intent of not doing a whole lot with it. So think about this for a moment. There is literally nothing that you cannot get in a library or search on the internet. There's no book you cannot get off of Amazon. Whatever it is you want to know or learn about, in about two days, you can have this at your doorstep to understand it. And while this is a very good thing, information for information's sake, that philosophy, can start to inform how we follow God. And what I want to say today, I think the premise of Paul's understanding of knowledge, our knowing God, is that if we approach God this way, if we sort of treat him like a forged in fire show, what will happen is we really can sabotage our faith in God. Because unlike the television shows or the information we consume, God doesn't just want us to consume information about him. He wants us to deeply experience him, and that is a very different thing. This is the thrust of his prayer for us in these verses. In order for us to fully understand what Paul is praying about, this idea of us really knowing God better, we have to remove ourselves to a certain degree from the cultural understanding we have of knowing something. Because knowing something in Hebrew thought means knowing something for the sake of it, for experience. It's shaping life in some way. Remember, Paul is a Hebrew. He's a, he's a first century Jewish person. And he's writing about knowledge from the way that he understands it. And so what this means is he's, he's making a deep connection between our knowledge about something leading to an experience with something. So, for example, that metal worker I just talk about, talked about a few minutes ago, uh, we can read about metal working skills and techniques, the stuff you need to work with metal, but there's a huge difference between knowing the fullness of what it means to be a blacksmith until you actually experience working with metal. I would imagine if you actually forge something with your hands and you have made that, that is a deep experience, unlike the one that I've had just observing that process. And I think this is the distinction Paul is making for us here about faith. His prayer for us is that whenever we learn something about God or we understand something about what he's doing, the mark of actually knowing that truth is when you and I experience it in our lives in a way that it starts to reshape our lives. One of the best illustrations ever given to describe this, I shared it with you about two and a half years ago, so I'm sure you'll remember it. This is, a, uh, in my opinion, it's the best one describing this from a great American pastor and theologian named Jonathan Edwards. And he used this illustration about honey describing this idea of knowing God and, and really knowing God. The difference between sort of hearing something about, about God and then actually knowing what that thing is you've heard about God in the depths of your heart. And he said this, it'll be behind me. So there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense in your heart that the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having actually tasted its sweetness. And so he uses these two sort of ideas. The first is one directly about God. He says, listen, it's one thing to know about the holiness and the grace of God. It's, it's another thing to actually have experienced the grace of God and for him to make you holy. And then he puts this in a, in, a, in a common tongue, and he gives this example of honey. 
And what he's saying here is, you can look at a jar of honey, right? You can see honey and say that it's yellow and it's kind of thick. It sort of has the, it, it feels like oil to a certain degree. It's thick and weighty, right? You can talk about honey and write about it and look at it and observe it. That's one thing. But to actually open a jar of honey and taste it is a very different thing. It's, it's, one has an experience around an item. The other actually has an experience with the item. The same is true as we seek to know and love God. So in the spiritual world, what this means is it's one thing to know that in Jesus, God has given you and I everything we need to have a, an amazing life, a profoundly meaningful life. However, it's an entirely different thing to actually believe this promise. We can read about that promise, but to experience that promise requires a level of belief in our heart. It requires a desire to taste the truth. And the way you know whether or not God has promised you a meaningful and rich life on this earth is whether or not you actually believe that to the point where it starts to reshape the way you live your life. You actually live in the freeing reality that you matter to God and he has a purpose for you. That's the truth with any Christian truth. When God says, I am gracious to you, whether or not we experience grace, we really sense that in our lives, that is the indicator of whether or not we understand the grace of Jesus. And so the bottom line in this is the degree to which you know God is really defined by the degree to which you experience the benefits of his promises. That's a good rule of thumb. If God says, do not be afraid, I'm your king, but we live in constant fear in life, what that means is we know something about God that he says we should not be afraid because he is the king of our world and circumstances, but we don't believe that to the point where we actually rest in the promise of God being a God who can take our fear away by making us a people who are more confident in him. And so to further marry these truths, Paul goes on to pray that we would experience God in a very specific way. And as we talk about this, try to think about this in your own life. As We're sort of beginning to wrap up here. And I want you to think about this, these things we're talking about, whether or not they are true in your life. So in verse 18, Paul tells us there's a clear evidence that should be present in our life when we really know God. There's something that, that should be sort of oozing out of us, and I'll read it to you. 118, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people. And so several evidences Paul lists in this passage, but there's one main one that sort of informs all of the others. One of the great evidences that you really know God is when you are living with the hope of his calling in your life. In other words, the people of God should be a people who have hope. Not a naive hope, not a hope that's not bruised and beat up and wounded by the woes of the world and the challenges of life. But there is a hope that drives what we do, how we think, and how we understand the world. So a good working definition of hope means that because we really believe we are safe and secure in the plan of Jesus, no matter what we face today, we can always expect good things in our future because of Jesus. That means even if death takes us, there's a good promise in that. Eternal life with Jesus. There is always this belief that we are secure in the plans of Christ. And because of that, our days, the days that are in front of us, we can trust in the fact that God is a good God and he will be good to us. And now in our world, hope is a precious commodity. And this is because the Bible says we were built to be hope-based creatures. We were built to be hopeful. We were not built to, be, to the contrary. Hope in life is supposed to be the normative way we think not the exception. And for some of us, it really is the exception. Whether that's a long season in life or maybe, maybe it's sort of like on a daily basis, you, you struggle with hope. My point here is hope is a promise from God. It is an evidence of the calling of Jesus in us. It is one of the ways we are supposed to be living in this world, hopeful. And this is why when we lose hope, we often go to great lengths to get it back. 
We try to make sense of why we don't have it. Nobody in their right mind would want to be hopeless in this world. And so the cry to find hope in our culture right now is ever increasing. We're living in some pretty interesting days. And anything I read on the news and anything I hear seems to talk about darkness and challenges. There are lots of places in our world, in our community, probably in this room, where there is less hope than what we really want. And what I love about passages like the one we're looking at today is that the authors of the Bible never deny this. That throughout life, there can be seasons of hopelessness. Why do you think Paul is telling us the evidence of, the, of, of Jesus in us, one of the many ways, is the fact that we live with hope? The Bible talks about this a lot in a very frank way. And hope is an interesting thing because as we think about a new year, most of us probably have hope. We're thinking about the future. We're thinking about what, what work would look like and our families. Whatever the future is for us, for whatever reason, humanity tends to think a lot more about it for the first two weeks of January. And then we also know from humanity that by the third week, we don't really think about this at all. That's usually what happens. Our resolutions are, you know, they're just sort of dusty pieces of paper and on our desks. We make a resolution and forget about it. That's the reality of them. Hope, though, transcends a resolution. And this is why the evidence of knowing God that Paul talks about here is so important to us. Because he's telling us that in Christ, we truly have the power to look beyond our circumstances. No matter what the year in front of us looks like, these circumstances, good or bad, or in the middle, the trials and hardships of today, the excitement we might feel about the new year, the fear or the anxiety that the new year might be bringing to us, all of these things are usually wrapped up in the bag of a new year. And it is important to know that we can face them with great hope because these things truly are just circumstances. They are temporal circumstances in the context of God's eternal calling on our lives. That's what Paul is saying here. Circumstances are truly just that. Oftentimes what makes us hopeful or maybe a little bit anxious at the beginning of a year is something we don't even think about two or three years down the road. And so Paul is trying to set our minds into the context of eternity. And his words are a beautiful promise that says there's a great hope in knowing that there is much more to our life, as valuable as this life is and the moments we experience today are. There is much more to our lives than just these days and these moments. This is sort of a, a small segment of forever. And what this means, the reason we can have hope no matter what we are dealing with, is that even if we suffer today, the hope of our calling in Jesus says the day will come when our pain fades away. If the body is broken today, one day it will be resurrected in Jesus. It will be perfect and won't experience pain anymore. If you experience hardship today, the hope of your calling says the day will come when Jesus will wipe every tear away. Can you think about that? One of the promises of eternity is there will be no such thing as tears. I, I, can't, even, I can't even understand that. There will be no such thing as sin. The thought of thinking about a world where there is no pain and suffering, like that's not even a, a registered thought in our head anymore, is amazing. And that day is going to come. That's what the scripture teaches us. And so you see how you understand Christ's promise of hope in your heart for the future. It's going to significantly affect how you see your life in the present. If you can't see beyond tomorrow, that is not the best place in your life to be. Because it means you are likely missing the plans and the direction of your God forever. And I want to give you an example of this. A few weeks ago, I spoke to an old friend that I hadn't talked to in a very long time. And he had recently dealt with uh, the loss of a loved one, his father. And if you've ever lost a loved one, which I'm sure everybody has either directly had that in this room or has been connected to somebody that has, the loss of a loved one is, is difficult. Uh, but it's especially difficult when a loved one is a cherished one. That's a different level of loss. And that's the type of relationship that we're talking about here. And so my friend's dad was a great man who loved God and spent the majority of his life serving God and the people God put in his life. 
And that type of loss, it cuts, cuts very deep, and it clearly should. That's a place where the body and the soul are wounded when that type of relationship is taken from us. Now, all that said, that sounds somewhat like a dire situation, and in many ways it is. But what was so encouraging about this is that while there was no denial of the, the deep and painful reality of the loss, what was clear is that the loss is not what, the, what the, my, my friend's heart was focused on. It was, not, it was not the outlook driving the emotions and every element of this person's head, heart, and soul. While the pain was very heavy, there was also an incredible hope present in the words that we were discussing. One that deeply recognized his father was not walking with Jesus in heaven. Now I want you to think about this. The ability to think this way, the ability to have hope like this during such a challenging time in life, it is an amazing grace, and it is a grace rooted in an amazing hope, connected to an amazing calling found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There is no hope like this that can deliver an eternal hope now, tomorrow, and forever like Jesus can. And this is the freedom that God gives us to deal with the challenges we often face in life while having truly a supernatural ability not to be wrecked by them because he empowers us to look just beyond them. That's what it means to live with the hope of your calling, to see how Jesus is not only present in your circumstances, but in your very life too. And that is what Paul is talking about here. When we speak about, sorry about that, when we speak about knowing God, this might begin in the annals of your mind but it will never truly be experienced in your heart until you actually know the honey, until you taste the honey. So if you have heard that there is hope in Jesus, but you often live without it, there's a great thing to be thinking and praying about because you will never truly experience what it means to taste the honey of following Jesus until you actually hold the hand of Christ and walk through the trials of life. Even though we often come out on the other side of these things limping a bit, you deeply know this fact, which is more than just a fact, that your hope in Jesus is always enough to carry you through. That's what Paul speaks about. Whether it's blessing or challenge, whatever is in front of us, the hope of Jesus carries us through from now to eternity. And this is truly what Paul is talking about here. He's saying the mark of those who know God is that they will live with Christ's hope in their heart. Because they know no matter what life brings today, no matter what 2019 brings you, Christ has promised you that he will work it all out for his glory and the future good of our life in this world and in the next. That even when we can't feel it, our lives are sailing towards the shore of God's goodness in Jesus. That boat is never going to turn around. We might not understand the horizon. We might not agree with the waves. But the boat sails towards the goodness of Jesus from now until eternity. That's what it means to live with the hope of Jesus in our hearts, recognizing that this is a calling that every single one of us has not only been called to, but we've been empowered to live this way. And so as we close this morning, hear this. In our modern world, some people choose to reject God's grace for a lot of reasons. Some folks just outright reject it. Others, I think this is a more prevalent problem, especially in the larger Christian community. We have some folks who just tend to settle for a nominal relation with, relationship with Jesus, where we're knowing God in some ways, but not knowing him like Paul speaks about here. They follow Jesus on the fringes, but they never make him the center of their lives. You don't get to this hope if something sits on the throne of your heart that is not Jesus. And I never quite understood why, why we would want to do that. I've had moments in my life where I have done that. There's no self-righteousness in this statement. I can't understand how we can reason in our heads at times that after hearing what God offers us in Jesus, we think of something else or desire something else. I'm not sure why a person would want to trade knowing Jesus, like Paul speaks about here, for something lesser, after hearing how God wants to know and love us. And there's a reason for this. 
I think this is possible in our lives. It's possible for us to, to follow or pursue lesser hopes that will never deliver what Jesus can. And this is why Paul prays that we would find an unrivaled fullness of life in Jesus. And so as we enter 2019, ask yourself, is something keeping you from this type of life? Whatever this year looks like to you, whatever your 2019 looks like to you, is there something in your heart or in your head that is going to keep you from experiencing the hope of the calling that Jesus has placed on your life? And my prayer for you and for me too is that nothing will impede this promise. And so if you are here and not in Jesus, maybe you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, I would encourage you to give your life to Jesus or at least to explore what that means. If you're already in Jesus, but maybe you lack the appetite that we speak for here, maybe you, you have tasted of Jesus in some ways, but you don't have a hunger for him, ask for God to grow that appetite in you. Ask for God to help you truly know what it means to know and experience God in the way we've talked about this morning. Watch how that changes your life. As we move into our response time, ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about how you will choose to know him in 2019? And what is it that you will do about it? There are next steps for you, for all of us. And when we keep our eyes on Jesus and his hope, we are more likely not only to find them, but to live in the fullness of what it means to walk in the footsteps of Jesus.